the future is it's dangerous, it's complex, the challenge we face. But if we assume there's a positive outcome, this also can be inspiring because it creates a sort of heroic challenge for a younger generation. Here's your challenge. Manage a planet. Welcome to Heja Framtiden, the Swedish podcast on the future. I'm sitting here with uh, historian David Christian. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Um, you just released your book, um, what is it called in English, actually? In English, it's called Origin Story, A Big History of Everything. Okay, and in Swedish, it's called Berättelse om allt, The Story of Everything, Story About Everything, <laughs> something like that. I love the title, it's very um, ambitious. Yeah. You practice something called big history. Can we define what big history actually is? Yeah, it's it's really very simple. It's um, it's it's big history courses are um, histories of the universe. So it's it's history, but the basic idea is that if by studying the past we learn about the present, then why not study more and more and more of the past? Why not study the whole of the past? So that was the original question that drove me to try to see if we could study or see the story of the whole of the past, beginning with the origins of the universe. And and why did you uh, stumble upon this? I mean, did you start out as a traditional historian? Yes, very much so. Mm. My my doctoral thesis was on two years of Russian history in the early 19th century, and it was about a reform that never happened. So it was a typical piece of really obscure research. Um, And then I taught Russian and Soviet history for many years, which I, I loved, and it seemed significant to me. But over the years, I became more and more worried that what I was really teaching, although I was teaching about the biggest country in the world, I was teaching a bit of human history. And I began thinking that in a globalized world, we desperately need to teach the history of the whole of humanity over 200,000 years. What is the trajectory that makes our species so strange? And then I realized that if I'm going to do that, I actually have to move beyond the traditional history discipline. I have to talk about evolution. I have to talk about how humans evolved about 200, 300,000 years ago. That means I have to talk about biology. And then I thought, yeah, but to do that properly, I need to know how mammals evolved and then how... So I back and back and back, and I need to know how multicellular organisms evolved, so I need to understand the history of the biosphere. And to do that, I need to understand the geology of the biosphere, and then I need to know how planet Earth was created and back and back and back. And then eventually I realized that In a sense, to study the history of humanity, I need to study the history of the universe that produced human beings. 
Why do you think this is important? You're uh, transforming this now into a school subject, uh, right, with the big history project. Yes, I think um, this is not a critique of existing education. I think people need to know the details, of course, of different different, But at some point in their education, they also need to see how everything fits together. Because a story like this, of course, is interdisciplinary. It includes cosmology, astronomy, geology, biology, anthropology, human history. It brings the disciplines together and it shows how they're, they're linked. Why is it important? So many reasons. One is because... If you look at human societies in the past, I think it's true that almost all human societies have taught something like big history. What they've done is they've taken all the best knowledge in that society and they assemble it into a sort of coherent story that can be told to young people. This happened in indigenous communities. We can be pretty sure it happened 50,000 years ago. It happened in the Christian world and the Buddhist world and the Muslim world. There were origin stories. Then a century ago, we stopped teaching them. And I think it's because there was so much knowledge emerging that people lost sight of the big story. Now, a century later, the scientific story is so good that we need to reassemble the whole story. And it's no longer good enough to see bits and pieces. And the reason it's no longer good enough is because if you do not try to see the big picture, you cannot see some things that we need to see. For example, if you've never studied the evolution of the biosphere and the atmosphere, you won't understand what's happening right now which is that in my lifetime, suddenly the scale of our impact has increased so fast that we're beginning to change the entire biosphere. Now, if you just study human history, if you study Swedish history, or you just study math, you won't see that. And yet that is the challenge that faces a younger generation. Like it or not, what we do in the next 50 years will shape the history of the entire biosphere and millions of other species for hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of years. So we need to see this very clearly and we need to think very carefully about what we do. And at the moment, we have a lot of the technologies to build a more sustainable world. It's the politics that's missing. So I hope this story can help us see more clearly the huge challenges we face today. And how can we use uh, big history to uh, predict the future? Well, we, we never predict the future. We can't. The future really is open-ended. What we can do, and businesses do this, and politicians do this, and stockbrokers do this, is they make bets on futures. And they look at any evidence that can give some indications about where things are going. Now, one of the best bets at the moment, because the science is very good, is that by burning lots of fossil fuels, we are transforming the Earth's climate system and we're transforming the oceans. So we can be pretty sure about that. And we can also be pretty sure that by doing that, we're going to create a world very, very different from the world we're used to, and a world in which that'll be very uncomfortable. So that's that's the challenge. So we, we sort of know what things are probably looming in the future. What we don't know is what decisions we humans will make. 
But the more clearly we see the challenge, the better the chances that we will make smart decisions collectively in the near future. So at the moment, I think I see a lot of bad decisions being made or, or failure to take decisions. And I think it's partly because millions of people cannot see the challenge clearly. You also mentioned uh, last night at the symposium that we need to be thinking about humanity as a whole. Yep. So we can identify which projects we need to focus our efforts on. How is that possible? I mean, do you think we can raise the view somehow and uh, disregard all the uh, national boundaries and religious boundaries? Look, I think we have to, and I think in all sorts of subtle ways it's already happening. You look at the Paris Accords. Now, it's easy to be cynical about the Paris Accords or the UN Sustainable Development Goals. They are rhetoric. But honestly, when I was a kid, the thought that almost 200 nations would sign a document like that, committing to building a more sustainable environment, committing to cutting carbon emissions, is staggering. So all sorts of institutions are beginning to emerge that allow people to talk across cultures and across nations. The internet, of course, is, is one. It's got its good sides and its bad sides. But the good side is that it allows instantaneous communications across nations. There are lots of NGOs that are international. So I think the, the, the structures needed for people to talk as a unified humanity are slowly emerging, with, but with great difficulty. But the dangers will affect all of humanity, and the solutions will require coordinated activity, not by one nation, by one society, but by lots of nations. So it's absolutely urgent that we start to think of ourselves as a collective humanity. Now, that doesn't mean we abandon all other identities, you know, I'll You'll continue to be Swedish, <laughs> but uh, we also need to take this identity as humans more seriously. Hmm. We, we didn't go through this before, but this podcast is called Heia Framten, which basically, basically means uh, share on the future. So have a sort of optimistic approach to the future. And you said yesterday at the symposium that uh, when thinking about the future, many tend to be very uh, pessimistic yep. and we talk about uh, existential risks and stuff like that. Which can be quite depressing. Yes. <laughs> and you, you you mentioned something that pessimism is quite useless yep. in uh, shaping the future. What do yep. you mean by that? Well, for years, I, I used to ask myself, am I a pessimist or an optimist about the future? And eventually I realized I began to think that's not quite the right question that we have lots of evidence about possible trends and we need to know them. And some are very dangerous and they are genuinely scaring. But once we start thinking about the future, we need to regard optimism as not a position I take, but as a kind of tool of the trade. It's an instrument we'll need. So what I mean by that is that there are lots of possible futures and, and the real futures will depend on decisions that are made in the next few decades. If we simply adopt a pessimistic position, then we won't even look for positive outcomes. So that guarantees that if there are positive outcomes, we won't find them. So if we're to look, if we're to achieve positive outcomes, the best possible outcomes, we have to assume that they exist because otherwise we won't look for them. I mean, this is very simple. Mm. So assuming that there are good outcomes is 
necessary to the achievement of good outcomes. And that's what I mean by saying that optimism, this is not being naive. You have to be very realistic. But optimism is a necessary tool. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of the sort of rhetoric of someone like, you know, Winston Churchill to Britain in, in 1940. He didn't offer any guarantees that Britain would win a war against Nazi Germany. But he did offer the promise that we're going to assume that there is a good outcome and we do not need to be pessimists and assume that the only possible outcome is is an agreement with Nazi Germany. So that's the sort of rhetoric I'm talking about. The future is it's dangerous, it's complex, the challenge we face. But if we assume there's a positive outcome, this also can be inspiring because it creates a sort of heroic challenge for a younger generation. Here's your challenge. Manage a planet. The first generation in the history of planet Earth that has faced this challenge. Can you do it? I think that's a great challenge for a younger generation. And it can mobilize their courage, their intellect, their intelligence, their capacity to network, all of those things. So that's why optimism is so important. Um, I mean, as you mentioned, you rarely see business leaders or politicians coming up with new uh, revolutionary solutions if they're being pessimistic. Exactly. And not, but not only that, I very often think that the big problems we face today are political rather than technological. We have many of the technologies we need. Part of the political problem is that, and I hate to say this, particularly in democracies, the timescales are too short. So the electoral cycle is three, four, five years. So it's very hard for a politician who's thinking about their own career to think beyond a scale of five years. Now, to think about ch climate change, you need to be thinking on a scale of 50, 100. You, you need to be caring about the fate of our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Um, and it's very hard to do that in modern politics. Now, sadly, a country like China, which does not have the sort of elections of de democratic societies, can think about the distant future. Uh, and they can do some very smart thinking about the future, which they're doing at the moment. Aren't they planning like 100 years and 500 years ahead? I'm not sure about 500 years, <laughs> but certainly they they can think very seriously on scales of 30 years. They have a, a huge plan now to implement the UN Sustainable Development Goals by 2030. So the government has instructed, you know, politicians and business leaders at many different levels to take those goals very seriously. And in China, if the government says that, you take it seriously. Mm. So there's a lot of very creative and dynamic thinking going on in China about what to do right now in order to maximize the chances that China at least will meet many of those sustainable development goals. Now, there's no guarantee they'll succeed, but at least they're taking the challenge seriously. And I live in Australia, and at the moment the politics seems to be completely deadlocked. I see no politicians, or, or, or at least, you know, the dominant politicians cannot even begin to take the challenge seriously, let alone implement a long-term plan. I usually end with this question. What is your best tip for making the world a better place in the future? 
oh, well, well, my own personal uh, attempt consists of trying to tell this story, trying to help people have the broad perspective that's needed to see the challenges we face. Uh, but I think there are, there are many, many optimistic signs. Um, so I, I be optimistic, I guess, is crucial, but optimistic, intelligently optimistic. That means seeing very clearly the challenges we face, but assuming that there is a sweet spot somewhere and we're going to aim for that sweet spot and hopefully more and more politicians and corporate leaders will begin to see that and one of the most hopeful signs i see at the moment is happening in sweden it's these uh, student strikes uh, a younger generation they are the generation that will really feel climate change they understand that they understand it better than most of the politicians in the world. They understand the urgency of this. So I'm a huge admirer of this wave of student strikes. We've seen them in Australia. We've seen them in America. And I think that may be a sign that we're close to a tipping point. Do you have any uh, reading tips besides uh, your own book? Th there are now two free online courses in big history. There's a wonderful kind of coffee table book published by DK Publishers in London called Big History, which has wonderful illustrations. Frankly, there's quite a lot of literature now on, on big history. Uh, you can Google big history and get a list of literature. There's an association, the International Big History Association. Um, so big history, which was barely visible 30 years ago is now a lot more lot more visible than it was there's lots of good literature but a lot of it is listed at the end of my book and if you're a teacher listening to this you can actually uh, implement the uh, big history course. you can go to either big history project i think it's bighistoryproject.com just google big history project or very recently in in australia we've released big history school um, it's 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 it exists in its first sort of experimental version, but that includes a syllabus for primary school students, and these are free, completely free online syllabi that can be used in any school that's interested in using them. Who do you think I should interview in the, the podcast? Martin Rees, maybe you've interviewed already. Yeah, I do that. Um, Johan Rockström, uh, you may have already interviewed. but Yeah, but not in this uh, format. Well, I think you, Johan Rockström and his institute have been doing wonderful work trying to identify the things we must not do, the limits, planetary limits. But also I think Johan Rockström would agree with me completely that a positive approach is necessary. Our challenge intellectually is is like a chess problem is to think our way through a complex problem wonderful now we have 45 seconds left till the taxi arrives <laughs> thank you so much david christian for joining heyframtiden if you're listening to this you can find everything you need to know about the podcast on heyframtiden.se thank you so much for listening thank you david for thank you very much coming to the show <laughs>